Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Scientists say memories of 9-11 may not be what they appear to be, but they are felt far and wide and can have profound effects. Also, the largest dam removal project in the world will soon be one for the history books, giving fish in the river a fighting chance in the future. I think what you'll see is a rapid rate of change with these species in terms of going from, let's say, hundreds to perhaps thousands and even tens of thousands in some cases for some within you know, several decades. And we paddle to a tame place to enjoy the pleasures of the wild. No one's saying nature is a cakewalk, is easy. What I'm saying is that there are deep pleasures that we're missing out on when we remove it from our lives or when we push it over into a corner. We'll have those stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The date 9-11 is burned into our hearts and memories. Even now, 10 years after the disastrous attacks, the images and emotions are still vivid. The trauma broadcast over TV was felt far and wide, beyond those who witnessed the terrorist strike. Dr. Roxanne Cohen-Silver is a professor of psychology and social behavior and medicine at the University of California, Irvine. I studied the impact of September 11th amongst individuals who were not directly impacted. So I conducted a study of several thousand people across the United States, most of which knew nobody who died that day, and I followed this national sample for several years, capturing the emotional, physical, and psychological consequences of the attacks over time. Well, what did you find? We saw post-traumatic stress symptoms in the early aftermath of 9-11 that mimicked those seen amongst individuals who were directly impacted by the attacks and in general, over time, remitted for the vast majority of the population. Well, we all witnessed this and watched it on TV, and, and we were traumatized. I know I felt like mm-hmm. I was hit in the gut. Yes, we, we did find in our study that about 60% of the population witnessed some portion of the attacks live as they unfolded on television. That is, they either saw the second plane hit the building or they witnessed one of the buildings fall. And we found that individuals who saw the attacks live on television were more likely to be experiencing physical symptoms over the years as well as psychological ones. What kind of physical um, distress did you find in people? We actually were able to see increased numbers of heart problems, cardiovascular effects in individuals who responded to the attacks 
with a lot of distress and continued to worry about terrorism over time. Those individuals were more likely to experience new onset physical problems in the first three years after the attacks. Well, now that we have the 10th anniversary and a lot of us are seeing and recalling and remembering the events of that day, Mm -hmm. are we being re-traumatized? I believe that there is a possibility that re-witnessing graphic images of the attacks may in fact reactivate some of the immediate post-9-11 distress. And I in fact discourage people from watching the graphic images of that day. I think that we can memorialize and commemorate the events of September 11th in a respectful way without being re-traumatized, without needing to re-examine the graphic pictures of that day. Do you remember where you were and how you felt uh, when you first heard about the 9-11 attacks? I do, and I will tell you, however, that fascinating research suggests that while we may believe that our memories of where we were and how we were feeling are accurate, they may in fact be wrong. But I was in California at the time, and I was corresponding via email with somebody who was in Washington who said, it's terrible what's going on here, and I didn't know what she was talking about because it was so early, and I remember calling out to my husband to say, turn on the television. I had to turn off my TV set after a while. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't watch anymore. Well, in fact, I saw the buildings fall, and I must acknowledge that I have never watched television about the attacks again. I was quite sure that watching these images were not going to be psychologically beneficial, and I think my research suggests that there is no benefit to watching these graphic images, certainly more than once. So has this left a a societal scar? Does it heal over? Does it mend? I would not say that our society in general has been scarred by September 11th. I think that there are many ways in which we have changed as a result. We no longer have a sense of invulnerability. We recognize that an attack like September 11th, is possible. Alternatively, if we would have asked a group of people about that on September 10th, 2001, I think most people would not have believed that such a thing was possible. After 9-11, it seemed people were, well, nicer to each other. (laughs) What happened to that? We did see that people were able to see some positives in the aftermath of the horror. And I think we see that often in the aftermath of any community-wide trauma. There is increased donations of blood and money. And I think that uh, that is part of human nature and certainly part of our society to rally around those who have been traumatized by an event and do the best we can to help them get through it. Dr. Roxanne Cohen-Silver is a professor of psychology and social behavior and medicine at UC Irvine. Dr. Silver, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. In 
Environmentalists were shocked and disappointed when President Obama recently delayed implementation of rules that would have regulated ozone emissions from cars, factories, and power plants. Now environmentalists are eager to learn what the president will do with another EPA clean air proposal. That one would reduce emissions of mercury and other heavy metals from power plants. 99% of neurotoxic mercury comes from coal-fired power plants. The proposed rules have been in the works for more than 20 years, but still there are no federal standards for these pollutants. Lynn Goldman is dean of George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services and a former administrator for toxic substances at the EPA. It's taken a long time, and yet during that time, we've continued to see from these power plants emissions of very harmful substances, mercury, even arsenic and lead. And so what this rule will do once it's finalized is that it'll require these power plants to install technologies that reduce the pollution from these toxic substances. How does mercury get into the environment? So you've got this coal, you burn it, it goes up the smokestack, and then what happens? Okay, so then the mercury is in the air, and eventually what's going to happen is that it will be deposited. And when it is deposited, particularly in water, it is converted from a metallic form of the mercury to um, an organic form called methylmercury. It's converted that way by microorganisms in the environment. That methylmercury then winds up in the food chain. And mercury bioaccumulates, right? So a big fish gets eaten by a bigger fish and so on. And and then if we eat that biggest fish, we get the the total accumulation of mercury. Yeah, and since we're like the biggest fish and and we like eating the big fish, we like eating fish, you know, that um, are particularly have high levels of mercury like shark and swordfish um, and mackerel, which we really need to avoid, especially pregnant women shouldn't eat those fish at all. A serious effect of mercury is the effect on the developing brain of the fetus and infant. And we know that if mothers are exposed to mercury during pregnancy, that there's a good likelihood that there will be an impact on development of the child, and particularly intellectual development, such as um, verbal abilities. So if the EPA proposals are adopted, what are the likely outcomes in terms of public health? Well, what EPA has estimated is that as early as 2016, every year, we would have 17,000 fewer deaths, 4,500 fewer cases of bronchitis, around 120,000 fewer cases of asthma, and something like 850,000 fewer days of missed work, um, mostly due to, um, to respiratory problems. You know, House Majority Leader Eric Cantor put the uh, repeal of air quality regulations at the uh, as one of the top 10 job-destroying regulations, and he's targeting it this fall for uh, repeal. You know that the air quality regulations in this country have been estimated to save the economy literally billions of dollars, billions of dollars. And if you want to increase the deficit, what you want to do is get rid of air pollution regulations. If you think about it, can we actually afford the additional deaths, the additional cases of bronchitis and asthma, the fact that the medical care costs that are associated with this kind of pollution are enormous and are a burden to our society. Can we afford all those days of missed work? What is the impact on families from those days of missed work? So the whole picture needs to be considered when talking about the effects on the economy. The EPA got something like 800,000 comments in support of this mercury regulation, but um, the opposition is vociferous, and I guess 
president is, is under tremendous pressure not to allow these regulations to go into effect. Well, in this particular case, I don't think there's a lot of choice. I mean, the EPA was actually taken to court by the American Nurses Association to ask that the EPA be required to make this standard. And this regulation must be done under consent decree. And so I don't think that there are very many options other than moving forward as they've committed to do. So the EPA is required to come up with the rule and adopt the rule, but could the president just say, we can't afford it at this point? No, I don't think that that's an option under the law for the president to do that. And I don't think that the president would want to do that. When you think about the impacts on children's health, on the health of families, um, this is a very important thing to move forward. But President Obama, um, you know, just recently kind of backed off of the ozone standard that the EPA had proposed. Do you not see him doing that, backing off, just delaying? This is under a different provision of the law, and the situation is very different. But still, it's it's a signal that we're all watching very carefully, (laughs) for sure. Lynn Goldman is dean of George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. She's also former administrator for toxic substances at the EPA. Dr. Goldman, thank you so very much. Thank you. Bye. Well, Congress is back in session, and after months of mudslinging, showdowns, and standoffs, you might not expect lawmakers will get much done. But commentator Paul Greenberg believes there's an important environmental bill that's coming up where Republicans and Democrats could find common ground. After scoring a resounding F during last July's miserable debt ceiling fight, Senate and House members are stumbling back from their summer vacation desperate for an easy A. And actually, there's one waiting for them if they want it, bobbing in plain sight in the legislative waters in the wake of the BP oil spill. You see, the Federal Clean Water Act, the instrument the government is using to exact fines from BP, has one tricky problem. Oil spillers must pay anywhere from $1,100 to $4,300 for every barrel of oil spilled. But the Clean Water Act doesn't really stipulate where that money should go or how it should be spent. What that means is that the possibly $20 billion BP is supposed to pay in fines could simply disappear into the morass that is the federal government's $3.8 trillion annual budget. Fortunately, the ultimate do-nothing Congress has a chance to do something smart about this. Bill S-1400 that will go before legislators this fall has the simple goal to mandate the federal government to use the BP Gulf oil spill damages to actually fix the Gulf. And boy, is that money needed. In addition to cleanup, the Gulf needs massive programs to restore the region's marshes, marshes which are now disappearing at a rate of 1.5 Manhattans a year. It needs work to rebuild barrier islands that protect the shoreline from hurricanes, and it needs a huge investment to restore the billions of oysters that were lost during last year's spill. And what's great about this particular piece of legislation is that it probably wouldn't cost the taxpayer anything, while at the same time creating important economic benefits in the form of rebuilt fisheries, safer shorelines, and cleaner ecosystems. Maybe this is why both Tea Partiers and Democrats like this bill. A recent poll of 1,000-plus likely voters conducted by Lake Research Partners showed broad bipartisan support for using BP funds to restore the Gulf. And so, Congress still sitting in the corner with the dunce caps on after getting the lowest public opinion ratings in history, has a chance to come back from vacation and score an easy A. Let's hope they don't find a new and innovative way to flunk out. Commentator Paul Greenberg. 
His latest book is Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. It's now available in paperback. Just ahead, letting the Elwha River go with the flow. Again, keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In a few weeks, workers will start dismantling the Elwha and Glines Canyon dams in Washington state. The effort is the largest dam removal project in the world. The Elwha River has been dammed for nearly a century, generating electricity for the region, but it prevented salmon from making their legendary annual runs. As engineers prepare to take down the two hydropower dams, scientists are hurrying to collect baseline data so they can compare the Elwha River now and when it's dam-free. Ashley Ahern prepared two reports about the undamming of the river. This week, we have her first. In a side channel of the Elwha, nestled between the two dams, there's a scientist walking around in hip waders, sporting a backpack that would make the Ghostbusters jealous. That's actually a uh, modified car battery on the back of that. (laughs) They're electrofishing, and it's a way of temporarily stunning fish, and fish such as salmonids that have swim bladders will then float to the top. Sarah Morley is crouched by the river, surrounded by buckets, bottles, and nets. She's one of a team of scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that's trying to record the food web of this river. Basically, they're trying to figure out who's living here, who's eating whom, and how that might change once the dams are removed. Morley reaches into one of her buckets, where several rainbow trout are recovering from their run-in with the Ghostbuster backpack. So we're going to do something called gastric lavage, which is a non-lethal way of collecting their stomach contents. Kind of like when you go to the hospital room and they make you throw up if they think you've ingested something toxic. Morley grabs a fish and squirts water on its snout until it opens its mouth. Then in goes the syringe and more water is used to flush out the brown, gunky contents of the rainbow trout's belly. Sometimes moving the needle in and out kind of helps pull it out a little bit. So this is what's in the belly. This looks pretty digested. Lots of small pieces. While Morley and her team are trying to map out what's going on at the bottom of the food chain in this river, another team from NOAA is trying to figure out how the river itself is going to physically change once the dams come out. And this is where the story gets personal. It's my first time in hip waders, clambering over some pretty big slimy rocks in about three feet of water. I'm off to catch up with the other team of scientists when, before I know it, I'm on my back in the Elwha, I'm soaking wet, and so is my equipment. George Pess leads NOAA's restoration monitoring team on the Elwha. He explains that I didn't slip simply because I'm a klutz, although that's a big part of it. It's about the rocks, which he and his team are measuring in this section of the river. 47. 42. Most of the rocks here below the dams are the size of softballs to basketballs and larger. It's definitely a sediment-starved river. So what that means simply is that all the smaller material eventually kind of goes away with nothing coming upstream. Rivers are like conveyor belts. They move massive amounts of sediment. When the dams went in, that sediment flow was blocked. Now there's about 23 Empire State buildings worth of smaller-grained material built up above the dams, with mostly big slippery rocks left below. And that's not just a problem for clumsy journalists. So when a salmon spawns, what it does is the female will turn to its side and actually move its tail and kind of project the water down and actually dig basically a nest. Now, if you have really large material, it's going to be really hard for a smaller fish to actually dig through that, you know, almost like a sheet of concrete. Once the dams come out, water will flush the sediment down the lower river and into the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Scientists predict some wildlife mortality initially, but big picture, that sediment will eventually rejuvenate the estuary 
and restore critical spawning habitat for salmon. Turns out, the sediment in a river is almost as important as the water. There are no salmon above the dams anymore, but every year, steelhead and chinook, coho, pink, and chum salmon bump their noses at the base of the lower dam, as if they know what they're missing out on. Population numbers of these fish have steadily declined since the dams went in, but Pest says things will turn around once the dams are out. I think what you'll see is a rapid rate of change with these species in terms of going from, let's say, hundreds to perhaps thousands, and even tens of thousands in some cases, for some within you know, several decades. It may not be a quick turnaround in the sense of somebody's life, but it's a quick turnaround for ecological recovery. The question is, are people willing to wait for the fish to come back naturally? The Lower Elwha Klallam tribe has built a new hatchery to boost stocks of steelhead, coho, and other salmon in the next few years. George Pess and his team will continue monitoring the Elwha ecosystem through the dam removal process, which starts September 15th. I'm Ashley Ahern on the Elwha River. Our story about the Elwha comes to us from EarthFix. It's a public media project that explores the environment of the Pacific Northwest. Next week, Ashley Hearn continues her series on the historic Elwha River Dam removal project and efforts to restore fish there. Ultimately, I think we're looking for thousands of adults coming back to the, the hatchery facility, chum salmon, coho, steelhead, and producing upwards of a million and a half or two million fish to be released. Not so fast. There's controversy along the river. Some people don't want fish hatcheries there at all. Tune in next week for part two of Undamming the Elwha. In recent weeks, more than 1,200 protesters have been arrested in front of the White House. They were demonstrating against a proposed 1,700-mile pipeline that would carry thick, gooey oil from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, to refineries along the Gulf Coast of Mexico. Along the way, the $7 billion pipeline, called Keystone XL, would pass through two Canadian provinces, six U.S. states, and over the nation's largest aquifer. Leading the protest in front of the White House against the Keystone XL pipeline was Bill McKibben. The author and activist is with TarSandsAction.org. He joins us from KQED in San Francisco. Welcome to Living on Earth, Bill. Well, Bruce, as always, good to be with you guys. Well, we've done a lot of stories about the existing Keystone pipeline and the proposed XL extension, but can you tell us exactly why you're against this project? Yeah, um, I think in a sense it's easier to say why it is that our protest against it turned into the biggest display of civil disobedience in 30 years in this country. Um, And, you know, uh, the reasons are two. One, this project is a horror. Not only is it a horror in Alberta where they mine this stuff, and not only is it a grave danger to be putting a pipeline across the Aglala Aquifer to get it to Texas, but it's also a pipeline that runs into the second largest pool of carbon on Earth. If we start burning this stuff in a big way, it's essentially game over for the climate. So that's one reason that there's been this, you know, willingness of 1,250 people to march themselves off to jail. The other reason is, for once, we have a chance of prevailing because Barack Obama can stop this stupid thing. All he has to do is say, I'm not going to sign the Presidential Certificate of National Interest, that's what they call it, that would be necessary to build this thing across national borders. 
Well, the State Department's involved in this because it crosses the border, and they came out last month with an environmental impact report that says, you know, no harmful effects, basically. State Department environmental impact report, I mean, I'm a college professor once in a while, anyway, and I read enough blue books to know when people are studiously avoiding the issue. The government's chief climate scientist, James Hansen at NASA, had to go get arrested in front of the White House to make himself heard. The calculations that his NASA team have put together are uh, astonishing. They show if you could light all the tar sands on fire, you would raise the carbon concentration in the atmosphere from its current 390 parts per million to somewhere above 500 parts per million. But, Bill, there's a lot of oil, as you say, in the ground up there, the second largest proven oil reserve in the world. And, and, and this country needs energy and, and jobs. What this country needs is finally to come to grips with the idea that we better make the transition off fossil fuel and on to something else. And they need to keep that oil in the ground. And if we do, then we will actually create a lot of jobs as we finally make the transition instead of delaying it for another generation. Any indication that the White House has actually heard the protesters? Well, that's an interesting question. The press secretary, the only thing he said is, I haven't discussed it with the president. But I'm pretty sure they've heard. I don't know whether he's heard enough yet, which is why we're continuing. TarSandsAction.org will be fighting on all fall because the president said he'll make his decision by Christmas. Many of us were arrested wearing our Obama 08 buttons. Well, you were willing to go to jail. Are you willing to sit out the next election if the president does sign the certificate and finds that this is in the national interest? I imagine that most hardcore environmentalists will probably end up voting for the president because it's clear that, you know, Rick Perry or whoever would be, you know, eager to build as many pipelines as he possibly could. But there's a big difference between voting for someone and supporting them. And if the president, you know, To get reelected, to have that kind of enthusiasm that marked his last campaign, he's going to need to do the right thing here. You know, as one of my young colleagues said, it's hard to knock on doors when you're in handcuffs. And I got to tell you, I am so proud at the people who showed up. This was not the usual suspects. We asked people when they signed up who was president when they were born. And the biggest cohort of people who arrested came from the Truman and FDR administrations. We are, the last day, the oldest person arrested was an 86-year-old man with a uh, sign around his neck that said, World War II vet, handle with care. He was 86 years old, born in the Harding administration. In your heart of hearts, you think you can stop this uh, pipeline from going in? Uh, look, the odds were very were slim to none two weeks ago. The odds are probably still against us, but they're improving daily and hourly. What had been a regional issue is a national and international one. Word is out. Global warming, you know, it's not like we're facing some future threat. Author, environmental activist, and professor Bill McKibben, he's head of Tar Sands Action. Bill, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Take care, Bruce. Well, there's another proposed tar sands pipeline in the Canadian pipeline. It's called the Northern Gateway, and it would carry Alberta crude 700 miles west to a port on the British Columbia coast, and from there to China, Japan, and perhaps California. Along the way, the pipeline would cut through the pristine Great Bear Rainforest, 
I didn't even know there was such a thing as a temperate rainforest. Turns out it's a unique home for a unique animal. National Geographic magazine sent writer Bruce Barcott on assignment to Great Bear. He came back with the story, Pipeline Through Paradise. It is, in fact, the, uh, the largest existing temperate rainforest in the world up there. It's uh, a massive swath of enormous trees. I mean, all sorts of firs and cedars and, uh, well, imagine moss everywhere. It's like a, a snowfall of moss. And it's a lot of small islands, really a huge archipelago of these islands that are home to uh, wolves and black bears and grizzly bears and a special subspecies of bear known as the spirit bear or the kermode bear. It's actually a black bear with white fur. You got to see a spirit bear, right? I did. I saw three separate spirit bears when I was up there. I uh, had the good fortune to be with a couple of uh, local wilderness guides who knew where the spirit bears generally came down to, uh, to fish during the day. And even then, you know, hanging out with the guides, just incredibly misty and spooky and wet and dripping and raining. And, you're, you know, you're wearing all the Gore-Tex that you own and still the stuff heaps down into your bones. There's some spectacular National Geographic pictures in, in the article, but you describe the bear as um, a kind of a white rug in need of a shampooing. Yeah, it's almost a, it's almost like a vanilla ice cream sort of color uh, when you when you see it up close. A little bit of orange to it. But one of the things that is most striking when you see it up close is that it is just a bright spotlight against the dark forest. Well, now they want to build, in your words, a pipeline through paradise. They want to build this northern gateway, which would cut through the Great Bear rainforest. Right, right. It all that all ties back to the oil sands out in Alberta. There's a lot of debate in America about the Keystone XL pipeline. But at the same time, Canada's working on other ways to tap the Asian oil markets. And one of their ideas is to run a pipeline from Alberta all the way to the coast that would end at a port right in the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest. And the folks there aren't so much worried about the pipeline, but they're major concern has to do more with the oil tankers that would be sort of winding their way through this jigsaw puzzle of islands uh, at the rate of about 250 a year. And I guess they're really large. Yeah, some of the largest tankers that would go through that area are about as long as the Empire State Building is tall. And like I say, the the main concern for the local people there, uh, which were mainly First Nations folks, is that they do, you know, gain an immense amount of their daily diet from the shores. They go after seaweed, clams, mussel, salmon, even herring eggs, and other, uh, other sorts of food from, from that area. But the unemployment rate in, in the areas is close to 90%, you write. Aren't they, you know, hoping that the pipeline brings jobs? The 90% figure actually is from back in the 90s when the, the previous battle in the Great Bear Rainforest was over logging and timber. And that was the, the great debate, was whether we should let the timber companies log the land and take the jobs that came with that. And since then, the, a lot of the First Nations folks up there have found other ways to make a living. But by and large, the First Nations peoples uh, on the water and in the Great Bear Rainforest are pretty heavily against the pipeline. They don't see a whole lot of benefits coming their way. What would the effect of the pipeline, if any, have on the, um, the spirit white bear? Essentially, we're talking about the risk of an Exxon Valdez happening in this area. And if that were to happen, you know, the white bears can, can stay out of the water just fine, but their food supply would dry up. You know, they rely pretty heavily on the, uh, the fall salmon runs coming back 
they get a lot of their protein and, and fat from those salmon and their essentially their their ability to bear cubs depends a lot on the amount of fat they can store up from those salmon runs. Have the the, the First Nation peoples developed traditions and mythology around the, the, the bear? You know, it's funny, not um, not really. I mean you when you go up there you don't see a white bear depicted on, you know, totem poles or carved into cedar in, in their longhouses. But really, it's a very, it was, it was kept very quiet. And, you know, keeping the spirit bear secret over the generations has worked well for both them and the spirit bear. But at this point, you know, I think they're kind of at least as interested in publicizing the spirit bear's existence, if only as a way to help protect the land and the water that both they and the spirit bear rely upon. Well, Bruce, thanks so very much. It's a terrific article, and I'm very appreciative that you took the uh, time to talk with us. No problem. Thank you. Bruce Barcott wrote Pipeline Through Paradise and Spirit Bear in the August issue of National Geographic. For pictures of the white black bear, visit us at LOE.org. Coming up, we go up the river and drown our recording equipment again. Stay aboard just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping students, workers, entrepreneurs, and families create a healthy and prosperous clean energy future. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. As the warm weather cools and we move into fall, many birds are taking wing in search of warmer climes. Mary McCann has this bird note. In September... Arctic terns fly south over the ocean, from Alaska all the way to Antarctica. Also in September, the last rufous hummingbirds depart their breeding range in the west, following floral highways of mountain wildflowers south to Mexico. Ruby-crowned kinglets are leaving the northern evergreen forests where they nest, on their way to milder climates. Each of these birds is migrating, but on a very different course. All have the same adaptive goal, making the most of food and breeding opportunities that change with the seasons. Arctic terns follow one of the longest annual migrations, traveling as much as 44,000 miles each year. Arctic tundra provides their ideal nesting site in summer. The Antarctic, the ideal feeding grounds in our winter. Rufus hummingbirds are medium-range migrants, traversing about 5,000 miles a year between temperate and tropical nectar sources. Some ruby-crowned kinglets are altitudinal migrants, especially in the West. They may remain close to the same latitude all year, but spend the cold months in the relative warmth of the lowlands, dining on insects and their eggs. In summer, 
You'll need to ascend thousands of feet into the western mountain ranges to hear the kinglet's exuberant song. That's Mary McCann of Bird Note. To see some photos of the ruby-crowned kinglet and other birds, migrate over to our website, loe.org. Let's take a wild trip to a tame place. Traffic zips along Route 128. Known as America's high-tech highway, it circles Boston, passing through densely populated suburbs. Here in Auburndale, 12 miles due west of Boston, just off the highway, the flow of traffic is replaced by the flow of the Charles River. Sounds of the roadway fade and nature takes over. Here at a historic Victorian boathouse, there are kayaks to rent. I take two. One for me, and a double for my producer, who will ride shotgun with the author of a new book about nature and the environment. My name is David Gessner, and I'm a professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. At this point, I've been cast as kind of a a nature writer. There, There are times I rebel against that. I mean, I feel like nature is part of everything I work on, Uh, Just like it's part of my life, I don't feel like I want to be defined solely by it. In his latest book, David Gessner searches for redefinition. It's titled My Green Manifesto, Down the Charles River in Pursuit of a New Environmentalism. Kayaking the river seemed the natural thing to do while talking to Gessner about his book. We strap on life jackets, grab paddles, and squeeze into kayaks. All right, let's set off. I put my recorder into a plastic bag and my microphone on top of the boat. We push off from the dock and paddle a few yards. Then my cell phone rings, I grab for it, and knock my mic into the water. What a jerk. I fish it out, fearing the worst. One, two, three, four, five... One, two, three, four, five. Well, it didn't take me long to ruin my microphone. I dropped it right in. Luckily, my producer Daniel Gross brought along another microphone. And the three of us set off again, paddling and talking about the 80-mile journey David Gessner took along the length of the Charles River that inspired him to write My Green Manifesto. Well, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, honestly. That's why I put the my in front of my green manifesto. I didn't claim it was going to be the end-all, be-all of environmentalism. I feel it was my green groping wouldn't sound quite as good. (laughs) And really what it was is groping toward some ideas about environmentalism that I had been developing for years and trying to break out of being paralyzed by my previous thoughts about the environment. Those thoughts included a sense that we're all doomed, (laughs) a sense that everything I did was fairly impotent, and just an overall sense of of, of hopelessness. And what I came up with in this book was what I would call a limited environmentalism, a smaller environmentalism, but hopefully a more effective environmentalism. There's thousands and tens of thousands of rivers you could have gone on, but you chose to go on this river, the Charles River. Why? I mean, this is not remote, it's not 
romantic. It's an urban river. Uh, particularly because of that. I felt that you don't need to go to Everest or the Amazon to experience the wild. And I love the fact that it was a limited river. I love the fact that you cross under 128, the, the highway. I like the fact that we're floating toward a Marriott hotel right now. And that when we go around the corner, we might see muskrats, herons. Uh, and I like the idea of an accessible wildness and wilderness. It really went with my thinking about a limited environmentalism. And we better understand that the way we fight for the environment doesn't have to be pure and the environment we fight for doesn't have to be pristine and pure. Well, you don't have to go far to get beautiful here, huh? Yeah, I think the next turn we're going to start losing the highway sound, too. So We're hearing red-winged blackbirds over there, and we're seeing... That's loose strife, the, the purple. Well, we got some kids in a kayak here. They're making a racket. Yeah, well, that's good, right? We're getting the kids out there. That's where it starts. <laughs> Contact. We need to have that contact. The word contact occurs again and again in your writing. You have to touch it. You have to be in it. You have to be in nature. I think the missing leg of environmentalism with a capital E was the whole mucking around in the world itself. It seemed like, why would you fight for something? There's a great blue heron right over there going over the loose strife. Right? Ooh, yeah. Uh. Um, the kids just saw that, too. That's what they're yelling. This time they're yelling positively, and so you can actually still see it landing. Just cruise ahead, and yeah. no one's saying nature is a cakewalk, is, is, is easy. What I'm saying is that there are deep pleasures that we're missing out on when we um, remove it from our lives, or when we push it over into a corner. There's a landing up here, and we can land along the edge right here and climb up the hill into the trees for a little bit. So where did this book come from? I mean, is it something you always wanted to write or it just popped in your head one day? Well, in a way, it built up for years and then popped into my head. And it came in 2007 at a time when environmentalism was suddenly hot. You had Leo DiCaprio on the cover of Vanity Fair next to a polar bear in a supposedly melting ice cap. And you had uh, Gore winning his Nobel Prize for the his slideshow. Twisty light bulbs were all the vogue. And what I was saying was that these things are great. Anything that ignites, anything that helps us is great. But we need to have that contact. You know, looking at birds, looking at plants, looking at trees, and that seemed to be missing for me. We're only a few miles outside of Boston, and it's easy to get here. It's not hard to get to nature. Well, it's a little hard. We paddled. <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I do think that the more we're looking, you know, we can hear a, a siren now here in our little pastoral glen. Um, we, the more we look at devices, the more we're just not outside, the more strange we get from it and the, and the more difficult it does seem. But here we are half an hour into our paddle, and we're seeing things that I, for one, hope my daughter gets out and sees and, and uh, her kids get out and see. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? You make it fun. You make it fun, in a word. You, you remind people, as far as grown-ups, you remind people that having a couple beers around a campfire 
is joyous and you some of the most wild times you're ever going to have are out there the fire is heating your face you've got this kind of primal thing going on you're having fun you're you know you're beyond social boundaries and bonds it's not some church-like experience only it can be that it can be spiritual but can also be really fun and for kids it's easy to make it fun granted we heard a bunch of kids screaming bloody murder back there but i've had enough experiences taking kids out canoeing and kayaking to know that at least some of them start to get the bug a little bit but what about the despair global warming the price of gas keeps on going up and we use more of it and how do you reconcile that how do you just not throw up your hands and say you know i i give up horrible things are happening I mean, I know the population is skyrocketing, that species are dying out. But my question is, okay, and then what? What do we do? The tendency when you think about these things is to get into the kind of the intellectual equivalent of a panic attack. It's like living with a spouse who's always saying, this marriage is over, this marriage is over, the world is doomed. Well, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're in a panic attack? You constrict, you tighten up, you don't do anything, you get paralyzed. And what I say is, okay, maybe these things are true, but you still get up in the morning, you still drink your coffee, make your things to do list, go to work. If we are in environmentalism that works against human nature, we're going to lose. You know, we'll have an army of none. You don't use the word wilderness. You use the word wild. What's the difference? To me, wilderness means some park somewhere far from your home, apart from your life. And what I'm advocating is a wildness that is part of your daily life. I mention in the book that seeing my daughter's birth and my father's death were the two wildest moments of my life, and I compare them to seeing breaching humpback whales on Cape Cod Bay. To me, that's every bit as wild, and we forget that we're animals too. And we all know it intellectually, but we really do kind of forget it. We, we, we're like, okay, that's over there, that sloppy, green, messy biological stuff, and we're over here in our other world. So you can reconcile the wild world because it's all one. We're part of it. Exactly, exactly. Where the Charles starts, I saw a lot of wooded banks, I saw marshes, but I also saw backyards with old tire swings and broken down docks. And I thought, how lucky these people are who live along this river. They've got a normal front yard and then they've got a watery secret in their backyard. And to me, that's a taste of wildness even if it isn't a wild river, per se. What's the secret? The secret is that they are connected to a larger world, and I particularly like rivers for this. Um, I have a very close friend who lives off of Temple Stream. He's a writer in, in Maine. I live off of Hewlett Creek in North Carolina. If we were ever feeling particularly ambitious, we could meet around Washington, D.C. <laughs> John Muir said, pick up one thing in the universe and you find it's hitched to everything else. Well, rivers hit you to everything else. Hey David, what is that bird right over there? You see him? Uh, that's an egret. Looking, looking over, it's looking to snap down into the water to catch a fish right now. You say in the book that this is a young adult book. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, a couple of years ago, I went to Walden with my wife and my daughter, who was then four years old, and she pointed to the stones that were where Thoreau's cabin was and said, that's where the house was of the man who ruined Daddy's life. <laughs> when I was 16, I read Walden, and, you know, it's been downhill ever since. I want to do the same for some 16-year-olds. And at one point in the book, I just said, 
you know who I'm really writing this for? I'm writing this for the 16-year-old who used to be me. You know, I'm writing this for somebody deciding what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to throw myself into? And maybe I can encourage some people to throw themselves into a life that has a mission and a goal, but also has something to do with the natural world. So it was a more consciously inspirational book than anything I've done before. Are you happy with the book? Yes. <laughs> I'm happy with the combination of humor and direct moralizing of the sort you usually wouldn't hear outside of church. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with the kind of shaggy, unformed character. I, I meant it to be as meandering as the river, and I think it's pretty meandering. <laughs> so, yes. Well, David, back to civilization. Yeah, and, and quite the civilization. If the point of the book is to get kids involved in nature, you came to the right place. <laughs> you succeeded gladly. <laughs> Thanks a lot for a great day. Thank you so much. David Gessner is author of My Green Manifesto, Down the Charles River in Pursuit of a New Environmentalism. For some photos of our trip down the Charles, paddle over to our website, LOE.org. And by the way, my microphone dried out and it works fine. We leave you this week in a small French village. It's morning in Serre-Maria, an agricultural town southeast of Lyon. Church bells ring, cars, trucks, and tractors are on the move, and roosters, birds, and dogs join in the mix. Stephen Feld recorded this soundscape for his series, The Time of Bells. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, and Ike Shreese Kandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. And this week, we welcome our new interns, Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and be sure to check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds. 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.